We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. I think the expanded playoff format will bring postseason baseball and maybe even more importantly, exciting September baseball to more markets. Hour number three coming at you here on Chicago Sports Radio 670 to score. Anthony Heron talking about all the main sports stories that have developed because Major League Baseball is back, not only on both sides of this town, but all over all 30 teams represented. They are returning to action as the MLB and the MLBPA have reached their deal, so baseball is back. But also the major Khalil Mack trade that happened where he is headed out to L.A. to join up with the Chargers and the return from that. We've been discussing that over the last couple of hours here. But one of the things that I've been discussing for the last couple of months, just related to media coverage, not only here with this MLB lockout, but then even expanding beyond that and looking at the last couple of years, the stories that have developed around collegiate sports. And there's been a shift in the way. It's certainly not universal. It's not all across the board. But there is more pro-labor, pro pro-athlete sentiment now in these last couple of years than there has ever been at any point in the history of any time any of us have been alive. And as it felt like this lockout was maybe coming to a close, and I was just kind of looking around at different writers about it, a couple of days ago I was actually going to have Ben Strauss on the show then, and then as stories developed we weren't able to make it work the other night. But he joins me now on the Circle Resort and Casino in Las Vegas Hotline home of the world's largest sports book. He's a writer for the Washington Post, and you can find him on Twitter at Ben J. Strauss. And at this point, Ben, we now have the opportunity to address the lockout in past tense. So we're in an even uh, stronger position now to have this discussion. How are you doing this evening? Um, uh, I'm good, man. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad we can make it work and, and get you on here. So one of the things that I found really interesting about your article is that you used um, not only in what you wrote for, for the WAPO the other day, you used not only some you know direct sort of social media reaction out there for a lot of baseball writers, but also just some reporting that you did in talking to folks, uh, you know, both on and off the record. So, you know, let's initially here, so I want to discuss this from a few different angles, just kind of step back and look at the, the way that this baseball lockout was covered by comparison to what was going on in the mid nineties. Give us a little bit of a sense for, for how this sort of labor versus management dynamic was covered during the baseball strike that happened back in 94. Yeah. So I, I, I could just go through like, I, as the owners and players are going back and forth in, in Florida and, and, you know, I think 
at, at a different time, you would have, you know, one side says X, one side says Y. Last week, all I could see was, was you know, the, the biggest baseball reporters, you know, in the world, Ken Rosenthal, Jeff Passan, um, you know, guys that, that a lot of people are reading. And, and it was pretty universal that the owners were just getting killed. Um, and it wasn't just like this proposal is bad. It was, it was in this like larger context of billionaires are bad and, and labor is good. Um, which was so different from how so many other sports labor disputes have been covered. You know, I went back and I looked in 94 and there was a story that an associated press writer wrote where, you know, baseball players went on strike. And so they went and found, you know, a worker who had gone on strike and, you know, the, the article comes out and it says that this worker worker makes $9 and 82 cents an hour. And Bob Bonilla, the Mets third base and makes $6 million. And the title of the, the story, the headline was, you know, ordinary workers don't care about rich baseball players. And I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a story like that today, sort of given the way that, that people looked at, at, at the, um, you know, the, the lockout. And so that was sort of the gist of, of, of what I wrote. And at this point, you were referencing some of the, the main baseball writers out there at this point. And, you know, sometimes when a situation like this plays out, then some of the writers are seen as either being a, a shill for one side or a shill for the other side. Are you noticing a difference in the, in the approach, not only just in the, I suppose, the, the way that, and an argument is being presented the way that the quote unquote facts of the matter are being presented, but actually just in where the writers are getting their information from, has that part changed over the years? Yeah, I think that definitely, uh, I think that the number of people covering this lockout were, there, there were a lot more, right? I think, you know, back in the day, you probably had an associated press reporter and maybe like a New York times reporter who were, you know, on the ground writing updates on, you know, a labor dispute. And now you have, you know, you've got The Athletic, you've got um, ESPN, and you've got, um, in addition to all the newspapers, and plus you've got, you know, places like Baseball Prospectus and Fangrass. And the the interest and the amount of information available to reporters now, I, I think, is a huge difference, right? Like in the 90s, you knew that Bobby Bonilla made $6 million, but today you know that, you know, the owner of the, you know, whatever team is worth $2 billion and you know that his team is worth $2 billion and you know, you know, the Yankees are worth $7 billion, right? It's like, you know, just how much money is tied up in the business side of baseball. And so, you know, just to cite a player's salary is incomplete. If you, you can think of them as rich, but you can also think of just how much money there is floating around baseball. Um, and so I think that's a, a huge difference, just the amount of, information that we know about these teams and how much money is in them. And also I think the, the players, you know, being on social media and uh, the union was pretty active. I talked to some reporters who described the uh, head of uh, the MLBPA uh, negotiating team as being much leakier than the, the baseball side. And so, you know, that would suggest that the union was more interested in getting their message out, um, you know, to more reporters and being more accessible um, whereas I think in years past, you have a lot of people who were just used to going to the league. So I think that's another difference. 
Ben Strauss of the Washington Post, my guest here on Chicago Sports Radio 670 to score. And, yeah, to the point you referenced a moment ago, like if, if Steve Cohen is able to pay Max Scherzer $130 million over three years, then just think of how rich Steve Cohen must be. So that, that dynamic does, you know, feels like it's a little more informed now than it was uh, previously. How, how has this timed up as, as you've seen it in your reporting? I, I've noticed it a lot both on the professional and the collegiate level just in, in covering this from a, a variety of angles where you know the way folks are viewing college athletes and now having name image and likeness available to them and you know and knowing all the money that college sports coaches are making and revenue generating sports i think that has shifted and certainly it's it shifted on the professional side of things as well how have you noticed it timing up? Is this just something that's kind of happened since 2020 and the, the way that folks are reckoning with a lot of different things? Or do you think it goes back even further than that? Yeah, I think that in the last couple of years, you could, I mean, even look at it like beyond sports, right? It's, you know, billionaires have an approval rating in the country at like 35%. And unions have their highest approval rating. Uh, I think it's like 70%, 68%. That's the highest it's been since the 1960s. So, I mean, the trends are within sports. They sort of match up like where we are sort of societally as well. And it kind of lines up in, you know, we're in this player empowerment era, right? You think about whether it's the baseball strike, whether it's NBA players picking their teams or recognizing college athletes have, you know, economic rights, um, you don't, I mean, you also don't see, like, how many columnists, like, rip players now, right? Like, that used to be such a, you know, a basic job description of being, like, a big city columnist. And you don't see that many people go after players the way that, you know, media, the way reporters, the way columnists did, you know, even, like, 10, 20 years ago, I don't think. Do you get the sense that the the way it's being reported is – is in some ways driving the public perception of it becoming more pro player or, or is it vice versa? Is it because sort of the public consciousness is shifting, then it's adjusting the way these things are being presented in the media? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. Cause you, you talk to like some of these baseball reporters and they're like, you know, if I report something that the league says, you know, people on Twitter are jumping on me for being pro-management or, you know, being sympathetic to billionaires. And, like, why am I, you know, a shill for the owners? And so I think the feedback loop, um, you know, like particularly on Twitter, is is pretty strong. And I know that reporters feel that. I mean, they know which types of reporting are going to get, you know, more retreats, more likes, and, you know, they don't risk, you know, getting screamed at on Twitter if, you know, their coverage leans more sympathetic to the players. But I think they also would tell you that the players are making better arguments than the owners were, you know, in a lot of these negotiations. And, and the, the players were really just right in a lot of senses. And the owners were making mistakes both in public relations, but also, you know, their proposals weren't very good. And so I, I think it's probably, it probably goes both ways. Do you get the sense that the the PR end of it, as far as just you know, it, it, you know, leaks, of course, end up coming from both sides here. But the the PR focus, whether from the ownership side or player side, and trying to get the public on their side, 
are they functioning any differently now than, than what used to be the case? Is there more of a focus on trying to get social media behind them than, than what you know they may have cared about just in getting the media on their side a couple of decades ago? Yeah, I think the union really went out of their way to to court um, some of the digital media outlets, you know, baseball perspective, fan graphs, and to court and to work open lines of communication with more reporters. Um, and I think that was absolutely part of their strategy. I think that they um, recognized that there were a lot of people on the Internet, a lot of people, you know, in baseball Twitter who were um, – already more sympathetic to their argument and, you know, realized that they could cultivate them and, and open lines of communication, they were going to have a good chance to get their message out. And I think that was absolutely part of their strategy. On the other side, I think the league was pretty surprised and quite frustrated, really, that they, um, you know, thought that the coverage was unfair and, and, you know, whatever the pendulum swing was, from being pro owner that you know had swung wildly to to being too pro player and like frankly unfair to the league and you know even on basic process things they were getting killed for you know taking extra days to respond to a union proposal and if the union took like five or six days nobody would say anything and so even independent from like what was in the proposals the league was just looking around going how are we getting so much more scrutiny in the union and the players. And the access that people have to the players feels very different now than it's ever been before. And I'm wondering where the, perhaps the pedestal that folks put athletes on and, you know, feeling like perhaps they're a little bit more untouchable, unreachable. You know, I, I think that on the whole, both players and owners, you could make the case that both of them are more reachable, but because the players are the ones folks are showing up to watch, is there perhaps more of a connection now in a, in a few different ways with, with players to fans and perhaps that drives some of the, the pro player sort of consciousness there because they feel like they can reach out and touch them in a different way. Yeah, maybe, I guess it, that probably works both ways, right? Like, you know, a long time ago, players were way more like us, right? That the, they weren't making tons and tons of money, right? The, even the people that were covering baseball players, right? they you know, ride on the same train as the players. And now obviously the players, a good number of them are, you know, making stratospheric amounts of money. So they're like further away from fans and from reporters than ever in some ways, but also, yeah, like you can talk to them on social media and um, they're at least like digitally more accessible to us. And, so I think that one cuts both ways, but but I do think sort of the larger trends like lean definitely toward people being more sympathetic to players. I think you hear this thing all the time now in sports, you know, when owners and players get into disputes, whatever it is, this idea of who makes the game. Um, and you heard it around, you know, Jordan and the Bulls front office. Uh, back in the 90s, like Terry Krause said, organizations win championships. And I feel like these days, nobody thinks organizations win championships. Everybody <laughs> thinks the players make the game and the players are who we want to see. And so um, I think that, that that just fits into all the stuff we're talking about. Do you get the sense that this shift is any more unique to baseball than, than any of the other major sports? 
Yes and no. I do think it is. I think that you see this trend everywhere. But the reason it stands out in baseball, I think, is because in baseball you had the Moneyball revolution, right? You you brought in all these private equity guys and brought in these Wall Street guys to, to run algorithms and spreadsheets and figure out how to build an efficient team and not pay anybody an extra dollar and, and to manipulate service time and to, um, you know, introduce tanking all across baseball. Like you had a different product. The, the game of baseball changed because of the way front offices tried to squeeze value out of uh, players. And you heard Tony Clark, the head of the union, talk about this in one of his press conferences. Players felt commoditized. Um, and like they weren't being treated as people, they were numbers on a spreadsheet. And that was probably worse in baseball than any other sport. So I think it was more extreme in baseball, but general trends are probably true other places too. You probably see it a lot in college sports too, right? You mentioned that, the idea that in a billion dollar industry, college athletes ought to be able to have the right to sell an autograph or something like that. So in baseball and college sports, I think you probably see it more than the NFL and the NBA. A really, really intriguing read. Make sure you check it out at the Washington Post, and make sure you follow Ben Strauss on Twitter at Ben J. Strauss. Really appreciate the time, man. I enjoyed your work. I, uh, I always love chatting, so um, holler at me anytime. All right, I will do that. He is Ben Strauss of the Washington Post on Twitter at Ben J. Strauss, joining me on the Circle Resort and Casino in Las Vegas hotline. Let's get back into some more football discussion. Had my guy Mike Yan from the NFL Network. Had him all lined up before all this baseball news broke, and there has been additional football news that has broken since then. So my plan, going to talk about these QB moves, the Bears move, everything else with Mike Yam of the NFL Network next on The Score. This is Sports Radio 670 The Score, Chicago's sports station. Takes the snap. Rodgers. Pressure. Down he goes. Ducks under Khalil Mack. And that's a sack. Mack with the sack. Aaron Rodgers goes down. Won't be hearing Jeff Joniak calling any more Khalil Mack sacks. At least not in the Chicago Bears jersey. A lot of folks, understandably, disappointed by that, wishing the Bears would have gotten more in return. And if you were going to trade them away, man, at least they did it the year after you were facing the AFC West. So you won't have to see Khalil Mack chasing around a Bears quarterback anytime soon. So that, amongst so many different quarterback moves that have all happened this week, let's get into these things with my guy, Mike Yam of the NFL Network. You can find him on Twitter at Mike underscore Yam. You can watch him on the NFL Network. You can hear him on Sirius XM. He joins me now on the Circle Resort and Casino in Las Vegas hotline, home of the world's largest sports book. Mike Jam, what's happening, man? I don't even know. I don't even know where to begin. Do we do NFL? Do we do the catch up? I feel like we should not be catching up for the first time live on air, man. I know it's late. I know you're right. little. You're going to get home. I don't know if you're sleeping with what those patterns are looking like, and and yet here it is amongst the chaos that is the NFL in the off season. How are oh, you, man? Man, I'm good, man. And actually, so well, so what ended up happening? How it played out for me? I was thinking yesterday and i'm trying to remember what what sparked the thought in my head i think i saw you in studio on the nfl network sometime in recent days or something like that i was like man 
I haven't had my guy Mike Jam in a little while, and I'm just I've been you know obviously very excited just for the way you've been flourishing since us working together at the Pac-12 Network and all that. I was like, man, I, I at least need to shoot shoot my gam a little little text. Just like, man, glad you're thriving and this and that. I said, you know what? I might as well just talk to him on the radio. So actually, we can just do a catch up. We we can definitely just make that happen, man. Are you still are you still in the Bay Area? Have you moved to LA yet, man? Where are you located these days? Yeah, no, actually, we we lucked out, man. I'm actually um, just because of the studio work that you made reference to. So we had to move from from San Francisco. So now we're down in the LA area, mm. right next to SoFi Stadium is where NFL uh, Network is is located. So I had to be a little bit closer to the studio, but we had a good run, man. I I, I miss working with you. When I got the text, I mean, and you saw, like, I responded pretty quick. I was like, you need me. <laughs> I'm there. Let's roll. And and then sure enough, what was it? You know, basically uh, probably an hour or two later, all of a sudden this Khalil Mack stuff comes down. Right. So it um, it's been crazy. It, it really has. And we obviously we know the draft is going to be pretty intense. We had some combine coverage. So it's been uh, it's a little different than when you and I were hanging, but but certainly an exciting time. Well, that, and that's the cool thing, because, you know, you and I both get to still talk a lot of things on the collegiate side, cover things on the oh, professional yeah. side, and it dovetails nicely into the Khalil Mack news because for, for what's happening in L.A. with the Chargers where, yes, they're still trying to grow that L.A. fan base and the move that they've made, but you and I got to cover Justin Herbert so much oh, while he yeah. was in college at Oregon, and he has been, as you and I saw in college, he's shown that that special ability already very early in his NFL career, and so now Brandon Staley decides, you know what? Let me go get that guy I coached in the D-line room when he first got to Chicago. Let me go get Khalil Mack and try to take this thing to another level. What are your thoughts on, on Mack going to, to the Chargers and what they can potentially build there? Well, it's big time. I mean, just think about what this offseason has been like. Anthony, it almost feels like what the NBA has had for, for a significant period of time, right, where you get big-name players on the move. You see some trades with Russell Wilson. I mean, there there's like this splashiness that, the NFL now is starting to capture that, once again, I thought the NBA has done a great job of trying to make their sport relevant year-round. And the advantage that the NFL has had, you know, the draft everyone was watching. I mean, the ratings for the draft can be bigger than the Super Bowl collectively. And now, all of a sudden, you talk about moves like this, and I think what the Rams were able to do when they traded for Matthew Stafford. Now, I don't want to say that's the blueprint of things moving forward here, but I can't help but think that the two LA teams, the one that just pulled the trigger on this move, didn't look at what worked for the Rams and said, you know what, let's try to get this going. And they've obviously need a little bit of help up front on that defensive side. I love it. I know on that intro, you had made reference to it. You're like, man, if I'm a Chicago fan, ooh, it is a little bit rough because you were hoping to get a little bit more. I will say this, the Chargers are, are taking over the remainder of Khalil Mack's uh, full boat on, on that contract. that has got about $64 million left. And three years, you would hope that Chicago, because of that, will be able to, you know, revamp, retool and maybe put some weapons and, and some pieces in place around Justin Fields. But I, I mean, I love it from a Chargers perspective, right? I mean, you got him and Bosa certainly, uh, you know, on that line, they got two of the four most expensive, uh, highest paid defensive players in the NFL right now, just based off of what uh, Bosa is making and now what Cleo Mack is making. But I think that's that one, two punch you saw it with sort of Aaron Donald and, and Von Miller. Uh, once again, another trade that went down that the Rams were able to pull off. So, Anthony, to me, I, I love it from that perspective. I just hope he's able to stay healthy. You mentioned those sacks. There has been a little bit of a steady decline, been dealing with a slew of injuries, ankle to knee, you know, the shoulder at one point. So I, I hope he's healthy for this Chargers team. 
And that's the thing by comparison, you know, the, the Von Miller trade midseason last year is what a lot of folks are comparing it to. But by comparison, there there wasn't the same level of financial strain that still remained on yeah. the Von Miller deal. And Denver actually still covered a little bit of that. By comparison, Khalil Mack, you referenced all that money. About almost $64 million remains there. So the Chargers covering that. And then you get the, the second-round pick this year, sixth-round pick next year that the Bears are, are picking up, but also just getting Khalil Mack off their books in, in whatever ends up happening, if it's a full rebuild or not. But a whole lot of quarterback news was going on oh, yeah. this week as well between Aaron Rodgers staying in Green Bay, Russell Wilson just basically a few minutes later – getting traded from Seattle to Denver, and Carson Wentz going from the Colts to the Commanders. So there's a lot that was happening there. Let's start. Yeah. Let's kind of go in sequential order there. Aaron Rodgers staying in Green Bay. How how much did you? Did you vacillate back and forth much like a year ago? Were you under the impression <laughs> he was definitely in his last year in Green Bay and up to recent days here? Did, did you think there was still a chance he might end up going? You know, at the, you asked me this question at the start of the season. I would have said, hey, there's probably a chance that he's not with the Packers. But as the season unfolded, Anthony, I don't know if you got that same impression, but I, I felt like things were starting to calm on that front. Right. Um, you know, Aaron wasn't as vocal in press conferences, sort of bashing the front office and Gutekunst and, and some of the decisions that he was making. And kind of on the flip side, I think he, a couple of times I caught him in press conferences praising his general manager, which seemed odd. So I thought that was a little bit of a tip-off to what was going to happen. But candidly, I mean, I've been asked this question, you know, for a couple of weeks, and I, I just didn't feel like they were going to – he was going to make the decision to leave. I think it was – I think there's a couple different ways to look at this. Number one, this is still a team that's had success and they haven't been able to get over the hump. And and I think some people might point to Rodgers. I, I don't think that's necessarily fair, but this is a guy who's still playing at an elite level. I knew that they were going to open up the, the checkbook form, which they clearly did. Now the highest you know paid uh, player in NFL history on this $200 million deal when you look at the terms over, over the next couple seasons. So, I think those are the factors that are there. You got to imagine, you know, clearly this decision. I'm sure he had conversations with Devontae Adams. The fact that he's going to be back in Green Bay, I think that's certainly huge. So I would tell you, Anthony, I wasn't all that surprised. I mean, this team, once again, has been knocking on the door for, you know, another Super Bowl appearance. So I, 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 I look, there's a legacy aspect too. You know, I talked to a couple people on NFL Network about this, the guys who had played, and I said, hey, does that matter? As much, you know, I think about great individual talents that only wore the one uniform. I mean, we've seen it in multiple sports, and a couple of the guys at the networks have said, eh, you know, I don't know. I mean, just because what Brady was able to do, they would reference him. I think it's meaningful. Aaron Rodgers, the greatest quarterback that that organization has had, and that's saying something considering the guys that played there. But to me, not surprised, and, and candidly, I'm kind of happy that he's there uh, and, and decided to stay in Green Bay. I would agree. I mean, you know, I've been talking a lot of baseball today for obvious reasons and where there is this huge separation in baseball between what the big market, major market teams are able to do versus the the perspective that the small market teams tend to bring to this thing financially. That's not the case in football, but it's still nice, you know, and obviously I'm in Chicago on the radio here talking about this, but when you're looking at the macro perspective of the NFL – it's nice for the league that a town like Green Bay, Wisconsin, can spend decades as a force in the National Football League, and that's a part of what shows the strength 
of the NFL when it comes down to it. My guy Mike Yan with me on Chicago Sports Radio 670. The score he joins me on the Circle Resort and Casino in Las Vegas hotline, home of the world's largest sports book. You can find Mike on Twitter at Mike underscore Yam. He is of the NFL Network and of Sirius XM. Uh, let, let's continue to work forward here with Danger Russ Wilson. He was one of the other quarterbacks from last offseason yeah. that began to talk about being on his, his last legs with his current franchise and perhaps wanting to be traded by the Seahawks. They didn't acquiesce before the season, but here we are now about a year later, and he is no longer in Seattle. He is out in Denver. Do you think that, you know, and, and Denver gave up a, a significant amount. Do you think that Russell Wilson now, gives the Broncos what they lacked in becoming now a Super Bowl contender? I think the answer, Anthony, is yes to that. But this is one of those deals where, you know, initially on on its surface, you say, oh, damn, the the Broncos got Russell Wilson. Of course that's it. I do look at the draft capital that they gave up, the two firsts, the the second-round picks, um, you know, not to mention some of those players. And, And I think from, like, a macro standpoint, if I take a step back, I say, hey, Seattle actually did okay in my mind in this deal. And I think you're still going to see some other changes. I think what's really fascinating about this is you look at that division and the AFC West and the quarterbacks that are there, right? I mean, Mahomes and Carr, Justin Herbert, who you made reference to, and now obviously with Russell Wilson, this is going to be as tough a division to navigate as possible, which also I think put some pressure on the Chargers not necessarily the match, you know, the splashiness that comes with Russell Wilson going to the Broncos, but how do we get better? And I think that does come in the form of Khalil Mack. They already got their quarterback, and we know how talented Justin Herbert is, the deal for Mike Williams, that now being in place. Those pieces are there, but I think from a Broncos perspective, my God, it, it, it's been tough the last couple of years looking at, you know, quarterback play that quite honestly just hasn't been good enough to – elevate this team and you know pat and their general manager uh excuse me Peyton, their general manager who's done a great job i think navigating in a short period of time some of these moves whether it was the von miller to try to get some more uh draft equity like they did from the rams and, and now this to put them I, I don't know if i'd say over the top because i still look at you know the chiefs i still look at the chargers as the teams that i would consider the favorite and you still got the raiders that went their car and, and some of the things that they've been able to do that this is this is going to be a fascinating division to to analyze as soon as the season comes around. And the the fact that Russell Wilson goes from a, a division in the NFC West that were that was perhaps you know getting set to become a little bit more manageable. We'll see what yeah. happens in San Francisco if Jimmy G is there or not. And frankly, Jimmy G obviously isn't anywhere near Russell Wilson's status. And then Arizona, some strife between Kyler Murray and the Cardinals. It was for a while the toughest division in football that Russell Wilson was dominating. Seattle took a little bit of a step back, but now he goes to what may again be the, you know, certainly one of, if not the deepest division in football going out to the AFC West. And I do find that as a, a striking sort of difference in, and you know, nothing wrong with the decision Aaron Rodgers made, but Rodgers has been dominating this division and there's not any signs yet that the Vikings, the Bears, the Lions are set to challenge the Packers. So you're seeing two different decisions between a couple of all-time great quarterbacks where Russell Wilson, you know, sort of willing to go and kind of take that challenge in the AFC West. Aaron Rodgers deciding to continue dominating a division that he's been dominating. I find that yeah. kind of noteworthy. No, I think that's a great call. And if you were Russell Wilson, I mean, look, you played, right? So you you have a you look at this through a different lens, but I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, my Lord, you know, Russell Wilson had, you know, a no trade clause. He had to agree to this. 
and he agreed to go up against those dudes in terms of the quarterbacks in that division, that's a guy that's really confident. And I, and I can appreciate that, but my Lord, if it was me, I, I, do you really want to be going up? Cause it's look, the NFL, look, you got the quarterback in place. You got a chance. And I understand that, but all those teams in that division have the quarterback. So now you're relying on those other pieces in place. Can that put you over the hump? And I don't know if the Broncos right now are set up to win in a division that's as loaded as it is right now. Russell Wilson might be the difference maker. He, he certainly could be. And you know what? If they get to the postseason, then I'm eating, you know, a little crow here. But I, I'd, that that's tough to navigate. And I, I don't. If it was me, I might hesitate. If I'm a quarterback, looking at what else is there and knowing what that roster and that team has has put together the last couple seasons. And I, I do find uh, it a little bit funny where people look back to this past season and just evaluate it as, as this down year for Russell Wilson when he was still 25 touchdowns, six picks, sure. a 103 rating, and throwing with a surgically repaired finger on his right hand. Like on his throwing sure. hand, he had surgery on that, barely missed any time, and still came back and was able to put those numbers up. So I, you know, I'm hard pressed to think that that Russell Wilson has actually lost uh, lost too much of his game yet. But we'll certainly find out pretty quickly. But it, it does seem that Denver is fairly confident he still got game where they gave up those two firsts, two seconds, yeah. fifth round yeah. Drew Locke, Shelby Harris, Noah Fant, and you know, there's not uh, nearly as much in return that came to Seattle with that. Let, let's uh, transition the discussion to Carson Wentz here, sure. the most recent of the QB news that came in where Colts made their trade. They got a third round pick and a third round pick that can become a second if Carson Wentz plays 70% of the plays this coming season and also a, a second round pick here coming up this year. The commanders get Carson Wentz and a second round pick. And he's for a guy who the beginning of his career seemed to start off with a, with as much as much fanfare, as much promise as, as any of the young quarterbacks we've seen over the past decade. Oh, yeah. And now he's just bouncing around from team to team and just hasn't been able to get it done, even when he's been healthy. That was part of the thought yeah. at the end of Carson Wentz's time in Philly. He's like, ah, too bad this guy just can't stay healthy. And, and now at this point, you're seeing over the last three seasons, now he'll be with his third different team. How do you, how do you see just Carson Wentz and where he's at in this space in his career? Am I alone in thinking something's weird here? Yeah, it feels I mean, like it. It, right. I think about what Washington did to get this guy and are booting on this experiment. It's five different Darius Leonard had tweeted this the other day, five different quarterbacks in five years. To your point, there was flashes of success that Carson Wentz had getting reunited with Frank Reich. Things were supposed to be going. And by the way, they were I mean, it was an epic collapse those last two weeks of the season. But we all felt pretty good about their chances as a dangerous football team had they gotten into the postseason. They didn't. Right. And the way that they did it was sort of spectacular and not in a good sense. But you just traded Carson Wentz to Washington, not necessarily knowing who that next guy is going to be. That that to me screams there. There's issues that we don't know about. And it was Frank Reich doing it. I mean, you know, like maybe yeah. Frank, it was more Chris Ballard than Frank Reich, but he came, He went to Indy and got to work with Frank Reich again where he flourished in Philly. So that that's maybe as surprising as any factor in this. I, I'm totally with you. And that's why, once again, I, I wouldn't be surprised that over the next couple of weeks or months, maybe in a few years, we'll find out the real story behind this. Because the Colts, you know, for all these teams that we're talking about, Indianapolis is a good football team. Neops right. got a great defense. They got some great weapons on offense. Uh, you look, you and I work together at Pac-12 Network. We know what Michael Pittman is. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, this guy's been yep. a stud 
you know, obviously I don't need to say anything more about what Jonathan Taylor does in, in that backfield, but I, I think that's what worries me from a Colts perspective. You just pulled the trigger, traded your quarterback, and I don't know who that next guy is on your ball club. And that to me is a problem. And maybe there's, this is the, the bigger piece to the puzzle that we just don't know. And they're going to be able to score a guy. I don't know who that player is going to be, but I hope the best for that organization. But I think from a Washington perspective is Carson Wentz a bigger upgrade than Taylor Heineke. I, I would say he's, I'd probably lean Wentz, but I don't know if it's a dramatic, Oh my God, he's the guy. He's the guy. Mm-hmm. I, you know, that's a franchise and an organization that has been screaming for consistency at that spot. Uh, it was a buzzkill form when Fitzpatrick, you know, sort of went down and, and they never really got to, to see what that was going to look like. But I, I, I hope that this starts, and I, I'm going to say another fresh start because this is now the second one in as many seasons for Carson <laughs> Wentz is, is successful, Anthony. I'm a, I'm a little doubtful here. And before I let you run, man, so in the, the days and weeks to come here where more more transactional news is going to play out here, but what interests you from a storyline perspective coming up here as we get between now yeah. and the, the pro days that will be ensuing, the NFL draft itself that's going to be upon us before we know it over the next month plus, well, what interests you storyline-wise around the league? Well, it's it all centers around the draft for me, Anthony, and I'm sure it does for you as well because I know you're sort of embedded, um, you know, obviously on the NFL side, but certainly on the college game. So you're you're very well very well versed in a lot of these players that are coming out, and you know who those difference makers are. I I, I always find it fascinating, Anthony, that people talk about this class and say, hey, not strong at the quarterback spot, and I get it, you know, from an evaluation standpoint. But you and I both know that there's there's a chance one of these guys really can play. Maybe it's Willis. Um, you know, I, I don't know which, which quarterback, you know, some guys really like him what they don't. But I, what's going to be really fascinating to me is for the teams, for example, in New York, both of them having two picks in that top ten, how do they retool? Um, some of these players that we're going to see, I would not be surprised. We've done a couple mock drafts. You know, some of them we've done actually on air at NFL Network with our guys. It's amazing to me the amount of defensive players, especially these edge guys, that are getting taken in our mocks, uh, which actually, you know, Daniel Jeremiah and Bucky, they're, they're doing theirs. But when you talk to some of these players and you look at team needs and the depth at that specific spot, um, it's going to be pretty remarkable here. So I, um, that's definitely one of those trends. I can't wait to see some of these guys work out because the combine was a hell of a lot of fun to watch, um, especially for some of those big boys. And Anthony, I know you got an appreciation for, for some of those guys as well, but some of the things that we saw down in Indy was were, were pretty spectacular. So I, I just can't wait to see how the pro days, you know, sort of play out. And then obviously all eyes on, on Vegas in the draft. No doubt, man. We know you will cover it as well as anyone. Again, really happy for what you're doing, man. I'm going to keep following you closely and we're going to stay in touch. We, we got to. But congratulations on everything you got working, man. I'm, I'm really happy to see what you got going. No, and likewise, man. It's great to hear your voice. I miss you, bud. And in all seriousness, I will call you this week because we do need to have like a real, you know, yeah. catch up family. The whole thing, man. It'll be good to uh, good to do that. But I'm thrilled for you, man. You keep grinding. I love it. I love it. I feel you, man. You do the same. We will make that happen this weekend. You got it. That is my guy, Mike Yam. I call him Mike Jam. He is on Twitter at Mike underscore Yam. You find him on the NFL Network. You hear him 
on Sirius XM. He was my guest here on the Circle Resort and Casino in Las Vegas hotline. He is a good dude, one of the best in the industry. Let's come back. We talk a little bit of Big Ten hoops. I gave you a little bit of a, a Big Ten men's basketball tournament preview the other night. There have been results between yesterday and today. All kinds of exciting action happening there and the days and the games that are yet to come. We'll do that next. I get ready to close out taking you up to Chris Ronzi, who will be here with us from 10 until midnight. Then Adam Studzinski will take over at midnight until 5 a.m. on score overnights. But I got a few more minutes. We'll talk some Big Ten hoopage. We'll do that next on the score. This is Sports Radio 670, The Score, Chicago's sports station. Io was a guy last year that was easy. And now Kofi's a guy that is relying upon guards to get him the ball, his dominance on the glass. He's a guy that has just tremendous, tremendous desire to want to be better and to want to work. I think the one thing that I've said about Kofi is no matter where he's at, what he is, he's a very, very, very dominant player. He's a very dominant person. He's got a great personality, and he's a, he's just a guy that has tremendous love and passion for life, and that's fun to be around every day. That's what Illini basketball coach Brad Underwood sounded like with Mully and Haw talking about his Illinois men's basketball team and having who is now Bulls rookie Io DeSumo on his squad last season. And now Io, who's been able to return to Champaign and check out the Illini there, and Illinois ended up sharing the Big Ten regular season championship with the Wisconsin Badgers. So congratulations, Brad Underwood, on that. They did get one of the double buys because they ended up being the number one overall seed in the Big Ten men's basketball tournament that is going on at the moment. And so uh, Chicago's Big Ten team, Northwestern, they did get a first-round win yesterday, just narrowly defeating Nebraska in a game that went back and forth, especially down the stretch. And then uh, Penn State was able to get the first-round win over Minnesota as well. Neither one of those teams is going to make the tournament, certainly not Northwestern at this point, because then the Wildcats ended up getting eliminated by my Iowa Hawkeyes earlier today. Iowa absolutely drubbed Northwestern 112 points. I think it might have been the highest scoring game in Big Ten men's basketball tournament history. So while they gave up 76, I was not the best defense in the Big Ten, but they've been playing better defense here as of late. But 112 points. Keegan Murray, a guy who was in the discussion for National Player of the Year and Big Ten Player of the Year, didn't end up getting either of those individual awards, but he's one of these guys who's certainly, as he if he decides to leave Iowa, he's going to be uh, somewhere in the top half of the first round in this upcoming NBA draft. But the Iowa Hawkeyes, they move on, uh, heading to action tomorrow. And uh, Brian Callahan's Indiana Hoosiers, they got a win today over the Michigan Wolverines. Juwan Howard made his return to the sidelines for the Michigan men, and that a, a Big lead, a 17-point lead in the second half of that game, and Indiana made a really furious comeback. You can actually check out uh, the remaining action, at least for today and part of the day tomorrow on the Big Ten Network. But that game between Indiana and Michigan just had Twitter a buzz while all the baseball news was breaking and while all the Khalil Mack news was breaking and other things were happening around the football world. You did have what was going on in the Big Ten men's basketball tournament as well. But Indiana ends up winning by five over Michigan after they trailed by 17 points. And the Hoosiers were a struggling offense throughout a lot of this season under Mike Woodson. So that one win 
I don't think Brian actually gets them into the tournament yet. They've been this bubblicious squad for a while now, but I do believe they can get one more win tomorrow. That may be what can set the Hoosiers up to uh, to actually try and advance with the Illini waiting on them. What what do you think? If they can get a win tomorrow, does that put them in? I mean, I would I would hope so. Like you're saying, they are kind of on the bubble. You kind of referenced like kind of last four out. You know, I, I really hope there's a lot of Hoosiers fans down in uh down in Indy. I'm sure there will be. Of course, you know the uh, the Illini fans always travel well. So yeah, we got a mm. we got a good one good one coming up. Right, no doubt. Uh, the other game that happened today, Michigan State ended up taking down Maryland, another very competitive game, a highly contested game. And uh, Michigan State, the Spartans, Tom Izzo, now the all-time winningest coach in Big Ten men's basketball history. He was able to get another Big Ten tournament win. They beat Maryland by four. So now Danny Manning, we'll see what ends up happening there as far as him and trying to lead the Maryland Terrapins. I don't think he's going to end up getting a really strong look from Damon Evans, the athletic director there at Maryland, for the potential to get that job. But, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I, I think Maryland, my understanding, and folks I talked to there, they've got higher aspirations for what they're going to do with their head men's basketball coach. They feel like they got a shot to land one of the major names in the industry. Probably not Tom Crean. Uh, former former Indiana coach uh, because of the way he got ousted at Georgia. His name has been floated around there a little bit, but I think Maryland fans are going to want someone who's maybe more recently been viewed as a big-time winner than, than what Tom Crean would end up bringing to the table if they were able to, uh, if they ended up deciding to hire uh, the former IU coach uh, for the Hoosiers. But overall, uh, the Big Ten tournament has actually been, uh, it's been a lot of fun to to at least watch it play out. I've got it on my TV over here while I've been on the air and just kind of seeing which storylines have been developing there. But the, the brackets on the whole, you know, it's been a, it's been pretty much, I mean, the, the games themselves have been entertaining, have been compelling. Uh, but in the end, most of the tournament field out of the Big Ten, I, I'd say the teams are, that knew they had a chance to make the tournament, that's not necessarily shifting much. Indiana was basically the team that came into the men's basketball tournament knowing that there was still something on the line for them, and then just you know being able to go and actually achieve that. So they got their one win. We'll see whether or not Indiana is able to to get a second win here. And I think if they get win number two, then that will probably end up being enough to solidify things for the Hoosiers. But it's not going to be any guarantees there because in the end, a lot of that ends up depending on whether or not the uh, whether or not the other teams end up playing along essentially with that as well. You know, if you get other teams around the country and chalk holds up then folks can be a little bit more certain about uh, about what the Hoosiers are going to have the ability to do. But if you get some other, you know, conferences that, you know, are multi-bid sort of leagues, but then you get an upset in their conference tournament, then it can make life a little bit more difficult for Indiana. And frankly, Michigan's a team that was still probably on the bubble. They were viewed as a team by most of the, the bracketologists that was likely in. And certainly I think Michigan would have solidified themselves as, as in if they could have taken down Indiana this morning, but they didn't. So there's a chance that Indiana-Michigan almost just kind of flop spaces. But I think what's more likely is that Michigan uh, is still in at the moment. They've done kind of just enough probably to still be in, and Indiana pushes themselves deeper into that discussion. But the Hoosiers are going to need to take down the Illini, I think, uh, tomorrow morning to sort of solidify things if they can. And then from there, Iowa's going to take on Rutgers. Rutgers, even though they're a top four seed in the Big Ten tournament, they're going to face Iowa tomorrow after Iowa took down Northwestern. 
Rutgers has had as many quad one and two wins as anyone in the country virtually, but they've got some really crushing losses also. So there's a chance that some of these early season losses that Rutgers had could drag them down a bit. I think in the end that the wins, especially that the wins came later in the season for Rutgers, it's probably going to be enough to carry the day for them, even though some of the metrics and, and where they're at in the net rankings don't favor them as much. Very similar to the Big Ten champion Wisconsin Badgers, but Wisconsin won the Big Ten championship. They're a number two seed in the Big Ten tournament. So the Badgers aren't in any trouble. Rutgers, you can maybe still think there's a chance they wouldn't squeak in if uh, if they lost, especially if they lost handily to Iowa tomorrow. I think in the end, Rutgers is probably going to be fine because they had a stretch of really impressive wins there. And like I referenced, Wisconsin is going to be playing later in the evening. They'll face Michigan State. Both those teams are going to be in. Purdue will face the winner of Ohio State and Penn State right now. That game is still playing out. And, uh, and Ohio State, uh, at last I checked, uh, has a lead in that game. So we'll see. Whoever it is, the Buckeyes or the Nittany Lions, who end up playing, you know, uh, getting that dubbed. And, and Penn State actually just took a late lead here. But whoever gets that one, they are going to have their hands full, I think, tomorrow with Purdue, who was my choice to go on and win the Big Ten Tournament Championship. So follow closely. Follow me on Twitter at Big Ant Heron. I'll keep you updated on how all that plays out. Uh, my thanks to the guests we had on the show tonight, Bruce Levine, Will Gottlieb, Ben Strauss, and Mike Yam. My thanks to Brian Callahan on the ones and twos for me this evening. As I've been uh, informing you of throughout the show, I am followed up by Chris Ranji. He will have all the news on baseball. He's, of course, been following this, predicting things very closely there. She got Ranji from 10 to midnight, and then Adam Studzinski from midnight until 5 a.m. on score overnights. And thanks to all of you. Appreciations and salutations for listening to me, Anthony Heron, on Twitter and Instagram at Big Ant Heron. For all these three hours I've been with you on Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Oh, 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 Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.